This is a Need 10 Media production. Hello, it's Nate Clayberg, and welcome aboard of this episode of That's a Job podcast. And on this show, we talk with professionals about jobs that many of us may not have known existed, or as well as jobs that maybe we're familiar with, but did not know how those people got in that line of work or the pathway to get there. And in this episode, I'm excited to connect with Megan Santo. Uh, she is someone that I heard on another podcast and the work and roles she had uh, very unique and it interested me. And I was like, I've got to have her on this show. Megan, thanks for being on That's a Job podcast. Thank you so much for having me, Nate. It's an honor and a pleasure. Well, it's uh, good to know that you dived in, uh, dove in a little bit ahead of time and, and got a chance to list some, some episodes. So you maybe know what's coming with this first question, but I've got to go. I've got to go back to high school and graduations knocking on the door. What story were you telling people of where you were going after that? So, yes. So luckily I was slightly prepared for this question. Um, <laughs> what I was telling people in high school is that I was going to write for the Chicago Tribune. That was my dream. I wanted to go to school and uh, study journalism and see my name in print, which was pretty unceremonious at that time because in 2006, things were going digital. And so yeah. papers were coming down and the what we understood the definition of journalism and being a reporter, print reporter, evolved during my time in college. So while I did study mass communications with a focus on journalism in, in college, my internships with the Sun-Times, I couldn't get into the trip, but with the Sun-Times, Chicago Sun-Times, quickly went from some print to digital and launching their digital kind of footprint, which now we all know. That's how most of us digest our news. Sure, so. sure. So yeah, I guess talk through that frustration. I'm a I'm a recovering journalism degree <laughs> holder as well. Um, you know, of of wanting to get into broadcasting, and then you know, radio just kind of changed as I was going to get into that. And newspapers were the same way. Was there a bit of frustration that okay, now what am I going to do? When you're looking at you know the opportunities and how they were changing, a little frustration there. And then I guess how did you I guess get trusted, you know, as a, as a young as a young professional to say you want to try this digital thing and see how that works. Is that how it went? Yeah, I mean, I would say when I had my first internship with the Sun Times, it was over two years, two summers. I did have a couple pieces in print, and it was the exact validation that I wanted. Like, this is so cool. I've got you know five hundred words. I'm going to review this this restaurant, and then. The second summer, it was very clear that moving away from print, going into digital, and there was a little, there was a lot of trust and a little bit of you, can you navigate this new frontier? Because this is new for us too. And so it was an incredible opportunity for someone of my age and truly an intern um, to help launch the digital platform, which was called Center Stage Chicago. It was kind of their answer to Chicago Tribune's Metro Mix. So my, I think the, the selfishness of my age at that time and not being able to see the long game was I set out to do X and now that that's pivoted, I don't want to necessarily be a journalist if it's going to be all digital. I mean, that, there, that was not the, the stature and I guess the pompousness that I 
was interested in. So my frustration more was with myself, like, oh, well, now I got to do something different. And so there was a pivot after college. There just wasn't a lot of jobs in journalism. And it's way cheaper to hire someone to write quick digital content versus long form articles. And so I didn't even think that there was going to be a career. Now, the 360 of that is I eventually went to go work for a digital lifestyle brand a decade after college. So I did end up coming full circle and coming back around as an executive editor in GM, where all we did was create digital content. So, you know, getting through that and and trying to find your way, and and I'm sure I, I remember thinking the same thing of like, the training we had, you've got to go work at a newspaper, or you've got to go work at a, new, a television station or a radio station, but new media forms were coming up. And one that I'm going to guess you didn't plan on being a part of was the Jerry Springer show, as I look <laughs> at your background. Yes. <laughs> Talk about getting into that and that experience. Yeah, absolutely. Well, the summer after the Sun Times, I this was part of the pivot of like, well, maybe I can use my writing in different ways, writing. And there is a, you know, Jerry Springer was in its truest form, a reality talk show, but there was also some magistry and some architecting behind the scenes, which includes scripts. So I I honestly just randomly emailed, I found the producer's name, the executive producer's name, uh, Rhonda. So that was something and, you were interested in that you came across and sought it out. It wasn't necessarily something you saw yeah. available. No, I sought it out. And, you know, of course, at the time, Oprah was the big show in Chicago. And so my mom's like, why don't you go work for Oprah? Like, well, I don't, I don't think it's that easy. So I'm <laughs> going to try to find a few different realms. So I actually reached out to a few, including Oprah's team, obviously, but um, a few television shows that were produced in Chicago um, I think Jenny Jones was here at the time, Jerry Springer, um, there was a judge show and I got a bite from the Jerry Springer team and they said, yep, we're looking for an intern. The hours were pretty rough. It was 5.30 a.m. I think till like two, which is also seems illegal. Till 2 a.m. Till 2 p.m. Okay. Now All that right. I think about it with that, I don't think we had breaks and it was kind of a catch-all. Like I did some writing, but I also screened the myriad of insane voicemails. That's how most guests landed on the show was they left voicemails with their stories. And so part of our job, part of my job was screening those voicemails to find, you know, colorful characters. Um, and then <laughs> I that think would you're putting that, you're putting that politely, I'm guessing. Colorful characters. Um, <laughs> we had some routine callers and then once we screened those individuals, they would go to an actual producer and then kind of that next level of screening. But yeah, everything from booking flights for on Hooters Air, which was Jerry's preferred line, sure. um, to voicemails, to trying to get um, people to come to the show as, as audience members. So I remember one time my fellow intern friend and I um, scouted all of the boats at Navy Pier to see if we could find bachelor parties and entice them to come to watch the Jerry Springer show. So it was um, a very interesting experience. So was that, I, I'm guessing it had to be a paid, it was a paid experience as an internship? It was not paid. In really? Experience. 
unpaid, all about all about the actual experience. So yes, we did get some swag. I got a lot of like Jerry mugs and Steve Wilkos was filming his show at the time. So we were also able to kind of watch what it takes to launch a show. And that was wild as well. So it was, it was great learning. I was victim of that too. And in, in media, it's uh, free internships, right? Cause there's yeah. so many people out there that want to get into it, but yeah, you're getting paid an experience. Talk through the value of that, that time you spent there. And I guess, what was the return on, on that investment of you spending that time as an intern and interning beyond your college degree or your college time? I think for that one, it gave me a sense of fearlessness because there wasn't time to have, you know, three people check your work, uh, get a gut check from a people manager. It was kind of, we got to go. This is television. And at that time, Jerry was in syndication. He also had a pay-per-view special and had a quite a huge following. So he was taping two shows every day, plus a pay-per-view special or pay-per-view. Yeah. Special once a week. So there was literally no time for mistakes, but if there was a mistake, you had to pivot, be agile, be nimble, figure it out. And all of that as still being a college student was very unnatural to me. Cause I think if most of my, my other kind of jobs after hours were pretty straightforward, a barista in a coffee shop. You know, I had the sometimes internship, but it was, you're very much protected and like, here's clarity in what you're doing. And this was, you just need to go figure it out and you couldn't have the fear of failure. So I think the fearlessness, learning how to pivot and learning to be agile and saying like, okay, well, this is the job. I'm going to run with it was really huge and something that I've carried through. And I think gave me the confidence to maybe apply for jobs that weren't one that I may not be one-to-one match for. And so, you know what, I'm really excited about this. I've, I've figured it out before I can figure it out again. I got to think Jerry Springer shows up on a resume across the hiring manager and they're like, okay, we've got it. We've got it. We've got to talk to her. Yeah. Uh, Okay. So you're done with that. So that was during colleges when you were doing that internship. Um, Yeah, I did it my last two years and they did end up offering me a full-time role, which I, um, after college at graduation, which luckily I turned down because six months later, he shut his show, his show was canceled. So that would have been a bummer. So after college, talk about your next steps through there to, to where the, the steps along the way that brings you to where we're at now. So I thought for sure that I would continue the path within media and had gone back to the Sun-Times, which they had since closed their smaller paper called The Red Streak, which is what I was kind of writing for. Center Stage Chicago, their digital platform, they were using freelancers. There just wasn't a career there. So long story short, I heard about a position in Chicago for an architecture and design firm. I had no desire to do it, to be totally honest. But after about four months of looking, I couldn't find anything. And similar to what Jerry, you know, the Jerry experience taught me, I was like, okay, I don't know much about architecture. I studied some marketing courses. I, they were looking for someone that was a really good writer because it was a new kind of story assignment, writing assignment. It was rebranding this 50 year old architecture firm to bring it up into a present, present day 
redo all of their materials, logo, all that good stuff. So that was intriguing to me. I applied for the role, I received it, and um, ended up staying there for almost a decade. And really, really loved it. And being in the architecture, engineer, construction, design industry was just something I had never anticipated. But at the end of the day, the core of that job and that role was being a really stellar writer and being able to flex from writing a press release to an RFP response to an internal email. I mean, all of those things I now carry through in my job today, just different industry. But to have that type of writing experience that's very audience-led really came from that, from my first job out of college with that, with that architecture firm. Yeah, you're there, you know, almost 10 years and, and through the experiences. And I got to imagine during that time, there was all sorts of projects, uh, you know, that you were a part of and have seen and probably still walk by some of those projects and yeah. and uh, can remember that. But, you know, what what came up that you decided to change paths out of that that moved you in a different direction? So after being there for 10 years, going through a recession during that time, too, and seeing this company grow from 40 to 80 to 110 people to to 15 and me being one of the 15 I was incredibly grateful and knew I wanted to you know showcase that loyalty for as long as I could until kind of things evened out and the company was in a better position and so once that occurred and we were hiring again a lot of great momentum I knew my heart wasn't in it I was never going to be an architect. And I think the only way to really grow in that role within a firm was to be a partner. And to be a partner, it'd be really tough to talk the talk and walk the walk if you don't have an architecture or some type of design degree. And what was always nagging me in the back of my head was back to what we talked about earlier of like, I still have such a heart for journalism. And at this point, around 2015, Digital was how everyone was consuming news. And there was a part of me that's like, God, I never really gave it the try that I should have. And so through an interesting network of individuals um, in Nashville that my husband and I are connected with just through friendships, we heard our friend approach me about doing some freelance writing. Her husband owns a couple media companies in Nashville. He was part of Yahoo. He started some sites called 24-7 Sports and Rival Sports, really successful sports websites. And he wanted to bring in a female part to his portfolio. So he purchased a blog called Womanista and didn't really know, you know, this is different. It's Female-focused writing is very different than sports scores and interviewing coaches. And he luckily, Shannon took a chance on me and I did some freelance writing for about a week. And then he brought me down to Nashville and he was like, how would you like to be editor? I'll teach you everything you need to know about learning the digital content. I'll, I'll teach you what you, you know, how we get it out there, which at the time was Facebook was our main traffic driver. I'll teach you about how we do advertising on the site and how you buy audiences and we're going to build something great. And because he was willing to take a chance and I was willing to work for a startup all hours of the night, it really worked out. We ended up selling the site to CBS Interactive 
2017. So you left Chicago to go down to Nashville to be a part of something you didn't know what it was actually going to turn out to be. Uh, yeah. And, you know, you don't get a lot of opportunities like that. I was newly married, uh, didn't have kids at the time. And I was like, okay, this is probably the only time in my life where I could really do this. And I trust, you know, this person, Shannon Terry's track record. I trust him as a leader. He's incredibly smart. And if nothing else, you know, if you look at kind of weigh the pros and cons, if nothing else, I've just received, I'm going to receive a master's and a masterclass from an incredible expert in this field. And that to me is worth it. So did you end up sticking around with when CBS bought it or was, did you move on from there? I moved on from there. CBS had kind of a different vision, which it's now the website is called popculture.com. It's a very successful site, but they were looking for people to move to LA, some different considerations that didn't make sense for my life at the time. At that point, I was, we were, um, I was expecting and wanted to be closer to home. So, you know, the, the question was, well, Shannon, do we start a different site? And I think he was feeling like this was exactly what he wanted to do, wanted to take some time. So we stayed really good friends and I kind of took a beat to say, okay, what am I going to do now? And McDonald's had gone through a pretty big transition at that time. They had let a number of individuals go and they, the CEO at the time, Steve Easterbrook was totally revamping the brand. And because of that, he brought in Robert Gibbs from the Obama administration, who was the press secretary for Obama, to start to kind of revamp the global communications team at McDonald's. And I had been following Robert and obviously Obama at that time and was really interested in like, why would this gentleman who could like clearly continue his incredible legacy in politics come to McDonald's? Like that is just wild to me. And so again, I took a chance and I applied for that job. Jerry Springer did work in my favor. It was a question by the recruiter. And I, again, pivoted into public affairs. I had no experience in government relations. I had no experience in Washington, D.C. And Robert took a chance on me. And it was great. I spent uh, about five years at McDonald's. So, yeah, you get into McDonald's and that's, you know, that's when I learned about you is when you were going through there and, and your title you had was global communications manager, but global strategy and campaigns and U.S. public affairs and global communication. What was that work? You know, I guess it was maybe different through those three different titles or roles, but talk yeah. about that work. So our main focus when I started in public affairs was, as you can imagine, McDonald's has a lot of pressures, external pressures whether they be from NGOs or shareholders or even consumers around what McDonald's is doing with animal welfare, ESG, um, sustainability, pay, you know, labor relations, public affairs in its simplest form for what I was responsible for was brand protection and stakeholder engagement. So when it comes to animal welfare, for example, working with NGOs, respected NGOs, and how we can revamp maybe some of our supplier practices. What are the right measurements that we should be using to ensure that the welfare of animals is really protected? And that trickles down into what's important to our consumers and what aligns with their values. So I did that for 
I think it was a year and a half or two years, and then they kind of shifted our team. And that just came with the nature of the landscape. What was more important to the company and to the brand was, okay, we've done this brand protection. We've established great relationships with some of our stakeholders, such as you know WWF, other welfare organizations. Now what we need to do is storytell. Um, and so when I was working on global campaigns, a lot of my work had to do with creatively storytelling externally about what McDonald's is doing, not just the kind of brand moments that I think most people are aware of, the famous trays, the famous fries, the the products, but the story behind the story. So for example, one of the projects I worked on was announcing um, a virtual power purchase agreement in the US, which is creating new renewable energy to the grid. And because of McDonald's scale, it was adding so much renewable energy that it was able to actually supply a portion of Texas and Oklahoma with renewable energy options that those consumers probably never would have had or would have been able to afford. So it evolved into the community impact storytelling, which was something that I never anticipated I would have the opportunity to do, but is carried through in even the position I have in now. Yeah, you know, you know, working in a in a company like that, you went from a you know a company of fifteen with the architecture firm, and then uh, the firm you went to, the startup, and then here's the big animal of McDonald's, mm -hmm. and it's not just focusing on a city or a a restaurant or a city or a region or even just a country. The scale of that, talk through just reaction and adjusting into something like that. Yeah, it's a great question. And I think my experience had always been very small firms. Like, yes, the startup, I was employee number two, I think at that time. So then, and we grew that to maybe 25 people, including contractors. And the largest company I worked for was the architecture firm when they had gotten up to 80 at one point. And so then you have a company like McDonald's, which exactly is, is, there was a point, I think, in my first three weeks at McDonald's where I was thinking, I think I was on a global call at like 6 a.m. with the global communications team, and there was 150 people on the line. And I'm thinking, what have I gotten myself into? <laughs> like, how am I ever going to be able to move something forward when even our team, I don't know, 25% of these people how, and, and when you think through that of like, if we wanted to get an announcement out, for example, around renewable energy, the, the alignment and the layers and the, the collaboration that needs to take place, because while that's really interesting in the U.S., I'll just give a quick example, and is important because it's impacting U.S. communities and, and, and communities that are at a deficit of options for having sustainable choices like a renewable energy. You have regions like the UK where they're like, this is old news. We have, you know, 75% renewable energy, including on-site solar. We offer this as part of just the basics for, for residents. There's coordination that has to go on to determine how does our story, our good story in the US, which is a brand reputation story, impact potentially negatively 
other regions? Or does that put more pressure on regions that maybe not be as accelerated as UK, as the UK and another region that truly doesn't have those type of resources? So it was a great lesson in working outside of a silo and determining how we collaborate versus not having consensus. And like, there's going to be times when not everyone is going to agree, but how can we at least agree to disagree? And I will arm you with the information that you need, you know, if there are pressures. And then also a very big lesson in just driving things and making sure that it gets across the finish line. Because one of the, the easy things to do in a large corporation is this insurmountable amount of swirl and talking yourself out of doing something because of all the wrongs or all the potential risks. And so with McDonald's, it was, we would typically talk ourselves out of something because like, oh, this litany of pressures that we could get. Right. Yeah. You get on global scale, things change dramatically, but you know, you you come through McDonald's and recently you made a change and to another big company. Yes. So I really, really enjoyed my time at McDonald's, incredible people, incredible culture. And I had tried a different, different hats on from the comms perspective and wanted, I was ready for another challenge. And so um, I had a colleague that recommended Hyatt. They were going through some changes, another Chicago-based company. And what was different for me this time was I led with the company values and the company culture and versus kind of the position. Because at this point, like I will figure it out. If it's communications or marketing, like I'm drawn to that. I think I have a decent amount of experience at this point in my career. But what's important for me is a company that aligns with my values. And Hyatt's purpose is to care for people so they can be their best. And every point in the interview with different stakeholders and also people that I talked to as not part of the interview process, but that had worked with Hyatt for a long time, had such a passion. I've never, truly, I've never met people that have a passion and a love for a company before related to the company's purpose. I think purpose-driven organization is a term that is is coming out of COVID feels very overused, but This is a company, Hyatt is a company that is truly a purpose-driven organization, and it stems from the CEO and is clearly runs through the veins of every employee here. Um, And that was the, that was the game changer for me. Well, it's interesting as you come along the way, and and I got to think uh, the values of the Springer show were a lot different than they are uh, with Hyatt Corporation. But, you know, a lot of the things that stood out to me, it's, there's things along the way that you brought up of why you took some roles or why you're looking for something different. And I think today, many people and young people especially can get, up, get caught up in how much money they're going to make or what benefits they have. But there's the extra mm-hmm. things that are beyond that of the values and the purpose that you talk about. Uh, think back to yourself, uh, you know, at that internship or in high school, what do you, what do you tell Megan back then? Uh, to be ready for or prepare for here in 2022? It's a great question too. I think the the advice I would give my, my younger self is to figure out, 
I think part of the reason why I would switch and not always look at a company's culture or values is because I wasn't sure on necessarily what was important to me. And it, it was really only after starting a family that I took a harder look at what do I really, where do I want to align myself? And then what really matters to me? Financial, monetary, the package that comes with the role, of course, that's important. And, you know, especially after seeing the devastation from COVID and those families that have not been able to kind of sustain or businesses that haven't been able to sustain, including my husband who's in hospitality. Yes, there's a point where a job is a job, right? But I think what the difference is now and what I probably wouldn't have noticed coming out of high school or coming out of college is how you feel doing the work that for a company that you're aligned with from a values perspective makes such a difference on your well-being. I am a different person because the work that I'm doing has an impact and I know that this company stands behind creating an impact on our local and global communities. And it isn't just a motto. It's not a, we're going to say this and then not actually back it up. And they back it up every day. And so that makes me much more interested and feeling fulfilled. And that translates into my home life. It translates into how I, how I show up in different areas outside of work because my role is fulfilling in that sense. Well, Megan, I appreciate you taking the time and and uh, get a chance to reflect on your pathways uh, through the world of work and the positions you've had and, and the people you've met along the way. But thank you for being on the podcast. Thank you so much, Nate. I'm looking forward to uh, listening to future episodes. Again, thank you for listening and being on this journey. And please subscribe and share this podcast. It's called That's a Job. It's on Spotify, Overcast, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast. The That's a Job podcast presented by Career Adventure Academy and the College and Career Discovery course. Discover the work you were wired to do. Now go live your career adventure. If you haven't done so already, hit subscribe to enjoy future episodes. Build your career adventure at nateclayberg.com. Production assistance provided by Bill Jordan voiceovers. Visit billjordanvo.com. This podcast is a Need 10 Media production.